Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into Song of Ice and Fire with Sansa's third chapter in A Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I've picked up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, we covered Book 5, Chapter 3, The Muster of Rohan. And this week, we're going to start Book 5, Chapter 4, The Siege of Gondor. I say start because this is a big chapter in every respect, a lot like the first chapter of Book 5 that we also spent in Minas Tirith. So to do it properly, I got to split it in half. So let's not waste any time and jump right into Book 5, Chapter 4 of The Lord of the Rings, The Siege of Gondor. It was dark and dim all day. From the sunless dawn until evening, the heavy shadow had deepened, and all hearts in the city were oppressed. Far above, a great cloud streamed slowly westward from the black land, devouring light, borne upon a wind of war. But below, the air was still and breathless, as if all the Vale of Anduin waited for the onset of a ruinous storm. The first three chapters of Book 5 built up to the apocalypse. At the end of each one, the characters descend into the shadow, reaching out from the east to swallow up Gondor and Rohan alike. Now the storm breaks, paying off everything that's been put in place. The Siege of Gondor is a colossal chapter, Tolkien painting a heavy metal fantasy battle on his largest canvas to date. It's everything that both characters and readers have feared since Gandalf first told Frodo that the Lord of the Rings had returned to make his war on the world. Here, Sauron's wrath and malice are unleashed on Gondor, and with them, Tolkien's literary ambitions, trying to convey nothing less than the end of the world. Yet the author never loses sight of the individuals caught up in the large-scale carnage and destruction, filtering everything that happens through their personalities, Gandalf's resolve, Pippin's desperation, and the crumbling family dynamic between Faramir and Denethor. Their responses to the threat define this chapter, even more than the threat itself, because their choices are what shape the aftermath, for better and for worse. At first, it doesn't seem like this chapter is going to be all that epic. It starts on a very small scale, Gandalf waking Pippin up, not for battle, but to do his duty by Denethor. Pippin, after trying to hit the snooze button a few times, asks for his breakfast, his first breakfast. Gandalf basically flicks a crumb at him and tells him to be happy with that. They're under wartime rations now, Tolkien drawing from the English experience of the first half of the 20th century there. Nothing could be worse for a hobbit than this. Even battle is less frightening than going without food. As he tells Baragond later, waiting on people who get more food than you do is basically a hobbit's worst nightmare. They may be humble, Sam always happy to serve Frodo, but they can still tell when they're being taken advantage of in an unfair system without a reciprocal sense of duty. We'll see that again at the Scouring of the Shire. I love that Pippin considers even the pat of butter to be very inadequate, already planning out the hashtags in his head. Like Sam in Athelion, Pippin can't help but compare everything to the bounty of the Shire, which of course he took for granted until it was gone. Mordor is waging war on Gondor, but the true opposite of the Black Land is the Shire, a garden versus a wasteland. Good places in the Lord of the Rings are where green and growing things persist, and bad places are where they don't. Pretty unmistakable pattern. And now the demands of war are turning Gondor into Mordor. It lines up with what Haldir said in Lothlorien. Our long war against the enemy has made us more like him, almost by default. He sets the terms. We labor under his shadow, and so lose all memory of the sun. 
Pippin wonders why Gandalf brought him here, to a miserable place where he'll be of very little practical use. Gandalf, as per usual, smacks him down ruthlessly. I brought you here because you screwed up big time by looking in the seeing stone, and I could no longer trust you on your own. If you don't like it, tough shit, it's your own fault. It definitely comes off like a parent-child dynamic, the parent exasperated not only with the child's mistakes, but how the child is refusing to learn from those mistakes. Go to your room and think about what you did. That's the ambiguity of Gandalf. He's here to help you, but you're never allowed to forget that he is unlike you. Much as Gandalf cherishes the mortals, he can't help getting annoyed with the limits of their perspective, which is a great source of comedy in some very bleak chapters. But Pippin has more than one stern, insulting father figure to deal with. He's in Denethor's service now, and Denethor is not exactly the easiest guy to work for. As in the last Pippin chapter, you get the sense that Gandalf is venting on the poor hobbit as a way of redirecting his rage at Denethor. Tolkien does a terrific job creating a sense of atmosphere around the steward, sitting so still in the grey gloom of his hall that Pippin thinks he hasn't even moved since the day before. Throughout this chapter, Denethor gradually leaves this world behind, increasingly convinced that taking any action, moving even a muscle, is useless. He could be a statue sitting there, like the statues of kings lining his hall. It fits the grey, stony imagery of the Paths of the Dead, but Tolkien also seems to compare Denethor to Shelob, describing him as an old, patient spider. It's like they're mirror images on either side of the river. The shadow is already here. The call is coming from inside the house. Shelob hunted Frodo and Sam, and Pippin feels uncomfortably like he might be a fly, straying into Denethor's web. It doesn't help that Denethor seems to know everything that Pippin did the previous day, as well as a surprising amount about Rohan. There could easily be a mundane explanation here, Denethor might be relying on spies, but the creepy, mystical feeling to it is deliberate, leading us to the revelation of Denethor's seeing stone. As I've said, Tolkien is contrasting Pippin's relationship to Denethor with Merry's relationship to Theoden. The old guard is inevitably passing away, but they make different choices and so leave different legacies. Theoden summoned Merry to join him at table in the last chapter. Denethor mocks Pippin for his hunger. I fear that the board is barer in the city than you could wish. Theoden speaks to Merry with respect, as equals and friends. Denethor won't even tell Pippin what his job is, saying only that he'll figure out if Pippin is good for anything. I think we've all had this boss, who treats communication and clarification as unreasonable burdens, and expects you to be grateful he's even taking the time to talk to you. When Merry is armed like a rider of Rohan, it forges a bond between him and Eowyn. When Pippin is armed like a guard of the Citadel, it makes him feel uncomfortable, longing for his older clothes, despite now looking like the prince of the halflings the city folk call him. In previous times, he thinks, he would have loved his new cosplay outfit, but now he knows this is no game. What the two storylines have in common is singing, storytelling, or rather, the absence of it. Merry didn't get to tell his tales to Theoden, Denethor calls on Pippin to sing, but the hobbit manages to get out of it. In one of his more sympathetic moments, Denethor says that Pippin's rustic drinking songs are worthy of his high hall. After all, is Gondor not resisting the shadow precisely so that lands like the Shire can be free of it? Why not preserve the memory of innocence one last time before it's all swept away? Denethor gives away the game, though, when he says that such a song would prove his vigil wasn't fruitless, though it may have been thankless. He's just got to get that in there. Denethor wants to be thanked. He wants to get the credit. He wants to be honored as the rightful leader of the last stand. That's why Gandalf's refusal to kiss his ass bothers him so much. That need for recognition stands in contrast to not only Theoden, but Aragorn. It makes sense that Denethor resembles Aragorn, who also has stood a long vigil to keep the Shire safe, 
But as Aragorn and his friend Halbarad said a couple chapters back, they require no thanks from the hobbits. That's not what they're in this for. Pippin rightfully calls out that pride as too abstract to be of use in such times. What is the good of such honor? A line you can definitely see influencing George R.R. Martin for A Song of Ice and Fire. Pippin doesn't want to sing here because he would be embarrassed on behalf of his homeland. He doesn't want to associate the songs of the Shire with his humiliation. He's caught in a difficult position, not truly at home anywhere now. He falls back on his fledgling friendship with Baragond, sitting on the walls and staring out at the Pelennor fields, as they did the previous day, but it doesn't feel the same. Pippin thinks it could have been a lifetime ago. It's a measure of the profound changes wrought by the shadow. As Baragond says, this is no natural weather of the world. It's an expression of Sauron's malice, forged in Mount Doom like the ring itself. And like the ring, it darkens all hope and counsel. Speaking of the ring, Tolkien writes that Frodo and Sam are just passing the crossroads at this moment, seeing the last gleam of sunset on the decapitated head of the statue of the king we saw in book four. Pippin doesn't even see that light. That's how bad things are for him right now, that his friends headed to Mordor with Gollum are actually having a better time. And then it gets worse. Like the opening line of Gravity's Rainbow says, a screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to now. Thomas Pynchon, the author of Gravity's Rainbow, was trying to capture the intense horror of the rocket attacks in World War II, and that's definitely what the, the ring wraiths are starting to feel like at this point, like they're a fantasy version of a Stuka bomber. Pippin heard this sound in the Shire, yet it has somehow grown to match the scope of the story. The sound turns them into listening stones, as Tolkien writes, still as Denethor sat in his hall, and he also is driven by this feeling of despair that the Nazgul bring with them. Pippin, by contrast, has to summon his courage, as Baragon says, and gaze into the abyss as it gazes back. Tolkien brings some of his most glorious gothic imagery to bear on the ringwraiths in flight, soaring around on their dragons, horrible as carrion fowl, he writes, yet greater than eagles, cruel as death. The horror of it reduces Pippin to a bestial state, panting like a hunted animal, as Tolkien writes. He is once again the child to Gandalf's parent, calling out for the wizard to save them from the monsters under their bed. In the middle of all that horrible noise, they hear a trumpet call. Baragon knows it's Faramir, and starts delivering a breathless play-by-play -play like a commentator watching the game of the year. Faramir faints left, passes the ball, he's going for the goal, the defense is moving up. Tolkien even compares Pippin cheering for Gandalf to an audience at a race. And it's a great way of putting the reader in the character's position. Like us, all Pippin can do is watch, even as Baragon runs off to help Faramir, the captain he loves and will also help save when Denethor tries to burn him alive. And then Pippin sees it. A flash of silver light like a star falling to earth, an appropriate comparison, because what is Gandalf but a shooting star? He's the light to the ringwraith's darkness, moving fast as an arrow, Tolkien writes, as if shot from the bow of the hunter god Arome. It's immensely cathartic because we're cheering with Pippin, hoping that the nightmarish Nazgul can be defeated. As he says, the white rider always turns up when things are darkest. Down on the Pelennor, Tolkien writes, it seemed for a little while less dark. It's all you can do, as Theoden said. He would be a father to Merry for a little while. And so Faramir returns to Minas Tirith. Merry compared Hurgon the messenger to Boromir, and Pippin now compares Faramir to his brother as well, but is also aware of the differences. Faramir has mastered his anguish as Boromir never could, and that quiet steadfastness moves Pippin, an impression of great strength that does not feel the need to insist upon itself, but simply endures. Again we get the Aragorn comparison. Faramir is a man who seems elvish, the heir of Numenor he talked about with Sam. 
It's a terrific reintroduction to Faramir, who we haven't seen in a while, and Pippin now understands why Baragond loves the man so. He's charismatic without being arrogant, the ultimate leadership recipe. He has that quality, the word Sam used, that makes people willing to follow him even unto death. It's hard to define, really. It's something beyond language. And so Pippin calls out his name with the rest, which quickly gets Faramir's attention. Imagine how bizarre this must be for him, to have recently parted from Frodo and Sam, only to stumble into another halfling, this one dressed like a guard of the Citadel. I would think I was hallucinating at this point that the ringwraiths got to me. Gandalf quickly intervenes, affirming that Pippin has a right to be here wearing those clothes. He came with me. What more character reference do you need? Pippin gets to tag along as they report to Denethor. And this is another great dialogue scene with the steward. Tension building and overflowing in multiple directions, loyalties divided, information alternately withheld and exposed. This ought to be where the defenders of the city come together, because shit is bad and getting worse. Instead, this is really where everything starts to fall apart. It's the exact opposite of the later chapter, The Last Debate, when the survivors of the battle are able to come together to embrace a last stand strategy. That scene starts with Gandalf telling everyone the key is to avoid Denethor's despair. And he says that because of how much that despair screws everything up right here. Denethor is smoldering with resentment and injured pride. You can see the division at work just in terms of how the scene is staged. Faramir and Gandalf seated on either side of Denethor, as if he's trying to keep them apart. Yet, at first, Tolkien writes, Gandalf appears to be asleep. He needs a nap. Okay, it's hard to be an angel. Gandalf prefers to let mortals make the first move because he wasn't sent here to make their choices for them. We saw that at Isengard, where he waited for the Rahirim to defy Saruman on their own terms before he laid his fellow wizard out. Gandalf's silence also emphasizes the relative unimportance of Faramir's initial report, which Tolkien passes over quickly, the border skirmishes we saw unfold in Athelion back in Book 4. As the author writes, this is the kind of report Faramir has delivered many times before. Congrats, Faramir, you killed an elephant. In the face of the monsters flying outside their walls, these deeds seem, quote, useless and petty, shorn of their renown. Both Gandalf and the author really start paying attention when Faramir says that Pippin is not the first halfling he's seen walk out of the stories. And I love how he puts that. For Merry and Pippin, it seems like they've wandered into a story. Rohan and Gondor are fantastical places to them. But for the men of those countries, the hobbits are the fantasy brought to life, a source of wonder. We're all estranged from each other's lives, so much so that we've become myths to one another. That serves only the enemy. We must reunite and know each other in order to outlast the shadow. Faramir is talking about Frodo and Sam, of course. Both Gandalf and Pippin know that immediately. Even as the wizard suddenly seems to wake up, he shuts Pippin up with a glance. Because this is dangerous info which he did not want Denethor to know. And the steward can tell. For all his self-absorption, he's a smart, observant man. And he can tell not only that this revelation is meaningful to his guests, but that Gandalf has been deliberately keeping it from him. After all, none of what they do here is as important as what Frodo was doing, which is why Gandalf suddenly looks so afraid. And that tells Pippin this is serious business, that Gandalf is afraid right after proving himself such a celestial badass out on the field. And we know Gandalf is right to be scared. At this point, Faramir asks for a performance review from his dad, and Denethor, silent throughout the scene so far, finally erupts like a volcano. Oh, you're asking me? You care about my opinion? Sure doesn't seem like it. Again, Denethor is observant. He sees that Faramir has really been telling this story to Gandalf, as if the decisions are the wizards to make, and as if Gandalf is Faramir's true father. He has long had your heart in his keeping. 
Denethor is jealous that Gandalf has Faramir's attention and affection. Not only is Denethor overlooking Faramir's persistent love for him, but he's ignoring his own role in this dysfunctional relationship. Faramir no longer immediately looks for his father's approval because he has internalized the reality that this approval is never going to come. Even after Boromir's death, when Faramir is Denethor's heir and the only family remaining to him, Denethor still cries, alas for Boromir, rather than hooray for Faramir. Part of this is the general obsession with death that hangs over Minas Tirith these days, to which Denethor will soon surrender himself. But it's also about the universal truth that the dead can no longer disappoint us, nor prove us wrong about anything. It's easy for Denethor to build up the image of Boromir in his mind's eye. This backwards-looking approach is leading them to doom. Theoden has already learned to look forward again, toward a life worth living, even if he isn't the one who gets to live it. Denethor proves incapable of that wider perspective, as it demands humility he does not possess, regarding himself, his sons, and his country. Faramir, by contrast, is a portrait of dignity and self-control, as he was in Athelion, for the most part. He knows he won't win an outright emotional confrontation with his father, and he probably just also doesn't want to deal with that after all he's been through. He says that he only wishes he'd heard his father's counsel before he had to make the call. It's a way to argue with Dad without seeming to, couching a criticism of Denethor that he's detached from events on the ground, no matter how far his sight extends, inside what seems like an apology. Denethor keeps honing in on potential weaknesses in his son's argument. Even if you'd heard my counsel, you wouldn't have changed your ways. You just want to come off as gentle and good, the way the men of Numenor were supposed to have been before the fall. It's interesting that Denethor doesn't entirely reject that idea. He says it's appropriate for peacetime, not wartime. Gentleness is a luxury afforded only to those whose power goes unchallenged. Right now, you need to show the true steel. And there is a kernel of truth to that argument. What good is your honor if the world is ending all around you? It's not dissimilar to what Pippin said earlier in the chapter. Faramir says he's willing to accept his own death as the price to be paid for doing the right thing, but Denethor correctly points out that Faramir bears more than his own fate on his shoulders. He's responsible for the people of Gondor, now that Boromir is gone. And that's what this is really about, Faramir knows. It's not me failing to do my duty, or even looking to Gandalf for counsel. It's not about my actions at all. It's that no matter what I do, I'm not Boromir. You wish I'd gone instead of him, don't you? I always flinch, in both book and film for different reasons, when Denethor says yes. What a cruel, thoughtless thing to say. Specifically, Denethor wishes their places had been exchanged so that Boromir would have brought him the ring. I love that, as Tolkien writes, for a moment Faramir's restraint gives way. You were the one who sent me to Athelion, Dad. For all that Denethor whines about no one listening to him, he ironically has no one to blame here but himself. And Denethor gets some very Shakespearean lines as he drowns in his self-pity, very much like the lines that uh, Stannis gets in A Song of Ice and Fire, stir not the bitterness in the cup I mixed for myself, making it sound like he's preparing to poison himself. He can't look to the future nor even really the present, because he's stuck in the past, wishing it had all gone differently. Would that this thing had come to me. Comfort yourself, Gandalf says, somewhat sarcastically. You shouldn't be tormenting yourself with this hypothetical, because it's a total fantasy. It never would have happened. When Boromir reached out for the ring, he was not rising to the occasion. He was falling, down into the same abyss that claimed Isildur and Gollum before him. He would not have returned to give it to you, he would have kept the ring for himself, because that's the whole idea of the ring. It's Sauron's selfishness given form, the solipsistic nature of unlimited power. No one matters but me. 
Yet even as the ring appeals to the ego, it transforms everyone it touches into their worst possible self, destroying the very virtues it wields as temptations. If Boromir had taken the ring and come home, Gandalf says, you wouldn't have recognized him. Like how when Bilbo saw the ring again at Rivendell, he briefly turned into a monster in Frodo's eyes. You can't use the ring to protect that which you love, because the power of the ring is antithetical to love. Be glad Boromir died well, and let him be at peace. Denethor can't see the wisdom in this, only the insult. How dare you suggest you knew my son better than I did? People just make a sport out of misunderstanding Gandalf. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he understands the ring better than Denethor does. The ring would corrupt Boromir like any other man. Denethor's love for his son isn't providing him insight, but the opposite, distorting the vision of which he is so proud. But Denethor is a complex character, more than a one-note villain to make Gandalf and Faramir look better by comparison. His judgment is way off, but he's still smart enough to reason things through. And so he's a chess opponent worthy of the wizard. He says that Gandalf wasn't able to control Boromir. Now, Gandalf didn't want to control Boromir, but the point is that Denethor is alluding to Aragorn as well as Faramir. You move other men as pawns, but not my favorite son, and not me. Denethor also says he didn't want to take the ring in order to wield it. He knows that's dangerous, he's not ignoring reality to that degree. Sending it to Mordor, though, in the hands of a witless halfling? That's even worse. You've just basically handed Sauron everything he needs to beat us. Gandalf doesn't even try to justify what he's done, because he knows Denethor won't hear the argument about doing the unexpected, having faith in those humble enough to resist the ring, at least temporarily. Instead, Gandalf asks what Denethor would have done instead. It's very easy to sit up here in your tower and criticize what Gandalf did and what Faramir did. What about you? Denethor says he would have hidden the ring away at Minas Tirith, presumably, ensuring Sauron would never find it unless he took the city, in which case all hope is lost anyway. And that's the problem right there, Gandalf points out. You think only of Gondor as it stands. You're not thinking of other people in other places. You're not even thinking in terms of the future, in terms of stewardship. Gandalf has a broader perspective. He's here to help all the peoples of Middle-earth resist the Shadow's influence. He says he pities even the Dark Lord's slaves. A crucial line for his character, establishing that there is no such alliance among friends on the other side. We already saw that with the orcs Sam overhears at the end of Book 4. Only Sauron himself is past Gandalf's sympathies. No one else is other to him. They are to be pitied, not hated. Just like when Sam saw one of the Southrons die in battle and wondered what his life was like, if he might have been happier at home. I think Gandalf is especially talking about Gollum here. He told Frodo that Gollum deserved Bilbo's pity, and that comes up again in his conversation with Pippin later in the chapter. There's a spiritual quality to this mercy. It's the emotional heart of the story in many ways. Denethor, naturally, rejects it, being mostly composed of spite at this point. Though he has a point that these other lands have relied on Gondor as a shield, whether they know it or not. Boromir made that same point at Rivendell. Even as they give these big speeches about how much they've suffered, though, the ruling men of Gondor elevate themselves in the process. They're hooked on their own martyrdom, believing their suffering makes them the most important, and they can't bear not being the most important. Theoden has accepted that he is part of a whole, one thread in a tapestry. Denethor just can't let go of the protagonist's syndrome. I could endure the test of the ring. No, you couldn't, Gandalf says. If you could, the council at Rivendell would have been over in five seconds. We would have just sent you the ring. You can't be trusted, any more than Boromir. Or me. Gandalf isn't driven by ego here. He doesn't set himself up above the fallen. 
He knows he would have joined them if he had taken the ring from Bilbo or Frodo. Don't bullshit a bullshitter, Gandalf is saying. Once again, the two old men have themselves a staring contest, their wills fencing like blades, as Tolkien writes, like Aragorn versus Sauron in The Seeing Stone, combat at a level beyond the physical. Pippin is afraid they're going to duel to the death. That'll wait for the pyre of Denethor. Tolkien breaks the tension as Denethor pulls back, saying there's no use in discussing hypotheticals. The ring is beyond their choices now. Only time will tell. True enough, Denethor is moving past that which he can't control, but he's replacing his narcissism with nihilism, saying that once hope fades, they can all just die free, foreshadowing his fiery doom. Denethor then turns back to the war as the scene ends, declaring that Osgiliath on the river will need some stout captain to defend it, hinting that Faramir should go. But Faramir can only mourn Boromir, the ultimate captain. I miss him too, Dad. You're not the only one who loved him. Denethor's love is selfish and jealous, though just for a second, we see a different side when he remembers that Faramir has been through hell and back, and needs his rest. Denethor still wants to connect with his son, still loves him as Gandalf will say, but it's buried down deep, like where he wanted to bury the ring, and when that love returns, it's too little, too late. So I'll be finishing up the rest of Chapter 5, Book 4, The Siege of Gondor next week. Moving on, I've been wrapping up each of these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations from Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago and how they handle each stretch of the material. And one challenge they were constantly facing, especially in Two Towers and Return of the King, was showing scenes that were left implied or described in the books. And I think they had to do that for a lot of the war scenes specifically, just to give a sense of danger and stop everything from feeling as stagey and exposition-driven as it might otherwise have been. So in Return of the King, we actually see the fall of Osgiliath. It's a fun, creepy scene with the boats coming over, the gothic fog and tension. We get Gothmog, the orc leader, has that, that great, almost like plague sore-looking design. And he grumbles about the age of the orc replacing the age of men. That's a lot of fun. There is no Baragond in the movie adaptation, so Pippin watches Gandalf save Faramir alone. It's a terrific adaptation of that moment, with that blaze of light, the angel choir on the soundtrack, just the, the speed and sound of it all as Gandalf races forward. And the movie cuts from Faramir saying he sent Frodo and Sam off to Kirith Ungol, right to Frodo and Sam on Kirith Ungol. And that is an advantage of the movie's story structure, that things are not segregated into the two books following the two different uh, storylines, which is a distinctive story strategy that I think works in a lot of ways, but the movie has an easier time of it in terms of directly linking these descriptions and actions for the audience. And then we get the, the standoff between Denethor and Faramir, which is much shorter and more condensed in the movie, which I think fits the medium, but also reflects how much less complex and ultimately less interesting a character Denethor is in the movies. He still functions well enough within the story structure. I still like the performance from John Noble. Definitely a much less interesting character. One interesting choice in adaptation is that when you get to that crucial emotional exchange where Faramir says, is, where Faramir says, you wish I'd gone off instead of Boromir, in the movies he specifically says, you wish that I had died instead of Boromir, not just gone off to the quest. That's at most implied in the book. It is outright stated in the movie that Denethor says, yes, I wish that. I wish you had died instead. And it's, it's, it's a cathartic moment handled well by the actors. And it, it works, I think, for a, mass audience for a movie audience, not all of whom have read the books, because it's more about the, the personal relationships you're trying to invest people in, rather than just the question of the ring, which is something we kind of already handled with Faramir because he had a much more agonized decision over it in the movies. So even though I think this relationship, which is one of my favorite parts of the book series, has been dumbed down somewhat for the movies, it is still dramatically functional. It's, it still gets me and it, it, it still suits the story that Peter Jackson and company are telling. So that is going to wrap us up for this week for Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening. 
As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch of other benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can follow me at PoorQuentin on Twitter. Next week, I'm going to be taking off. I'm going to be going out of town for the 4th of July. So the week after that, we'll be back here to wrap up the Siege of Gondor with some of Tolkien's wildest, craziest imagery, some of the most exciting stuff in the whole series. Can't wait for that. So thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time for more Lord of the Rings.